Hello, I'm Dr. Peng Xianqian, the Editor-in-Chief of Harvardum. Thank you for listening to this podcast, which covers the July 2018 issue. The featured article this month is titled Cybersecurity Vulnerabilities of Cardiac Implantable Electronic Devices by David Slotweiner et al. from Weill Cornell Medical College, New York. An author interview conducted by our online editor, Dr. Daniel Mooring, can be found at the www.hotrhythmjournal.com website. Computers, networking, and software have become essential tools for healthcare. Our daily lives increasingly depend on digital technology, and we are persistently bombarded by the need to secure the systems and data they generate and store from attack, damage, and unauthorized access. Cybersecurity vulnerabilities of cardiac implantable electronic devices, or CIEDs, are no longer hypothetical. Therefore, the HRS, ACC, FDA, FBI, and the patient representatives held a summit conference on November 2017 about cybersecurity. This article summarizes the participants' recommendations on how to manage the cybersecurity issues of the CIED. The next article is Mechanical Function of Left Atrium is Improved with Epicardial Ligation of Left Atrial Appendage by Dar et al. from the University of Kansas. The data came from the LAFIT.LARIAT registry or LAFIT, LARIAT registry. A total of 66 patients who underwent successful LA appendage exclusion were included. The results showed that LA appendage occlusion reduces LAVI or the ratio between LA volume and the body surface area. The LAVI is predictive of, of clinical outcomes in patients with AF and other heart diseases. This data suggests that LA appendage ligation causes structural and hemodynamic benefits in addition to preventing stroke. However, the study is limited by the small sample size and the retrospective study design. A prospective study with a control group is needed to confirm these findings. Next up is effect of dual chamber minimal ventricular pacing on paroxysmal atrial fibrillation incidence in myotonic dystrophy type 1 patients by Russo et al. from Monaldi Hospital, Naples, Italy. AF is a common finding in the myotonic dystrophy type 1 or DM1 population. DM1 is an autosomal dominant multi-system disease with increased risk for both Brady and tachyarrhythmias. The authors randomized 70 DM1 patients with dual chamber pacemakers to minimizing ventricular pacing features 
on or off. The results showed that minimal ventricular pacing is an effective strategy for reducing the risk of AF in DM1 patients who have undergone pacemaker implantation. The results suggest that dual-chamber pacemakers with minimal ventricular pacing can both prevent uh, bradycardia and reduce the risk of AF. More studies will be needed to determine if early pacemaker implantation is indicated in patients with DM1. Rovaris et al. from San Gerardo Hospital, Monza, Italy, wrote the next article entitled, Does the CHAS2 DS2 VASC score reliably predict atrial arrhythmias? The authors studied 2,410 patients with no documented AF who had received a cardiac device with diagnostic available regarding atrial high rate episodes. Over a median duration of two years, the incidence of atrial high rate episodes was higher among those with higher CHAS2 DS2 VASC scores. At the receiver operating curve analysis, CHAS2 DS2 VASC greater than or equal to 2 was estimated to predict persistent forms of atrial high rate episodes. The authors conclude that in a CIED population with no previous diagnosis of clinical AF, the incidence of atrial high rate episodes increased with the increasing CHAS2-VASC score. However, patients with device-detected atrial high rate episodes seem to be at lower risk for thromboembolic events compared to the general AF population. Therefore, the net clinical benefit from anticoagulation of these patients might be less than in patients with AF. In the absence of further data, this study alone does not indicate that all patients with high CHAS2-DS2 VASC scores should be anticoagulated. Next up is pulmonary vein activity does not predict the outcome of castor ablation for persistent atrial fibrillation by, by Prabhu et al. from Alfred Hospital, Victoria, Australia. A total of 123 patients underwent castor ablation for AF. PV isolation was achieved in 100% of patients. Multi-procedure success was achieved in 76% of patients at two years. PV activation cycle lens and the presence of PV, PVAF did not predict multi-procedure success. An implication of this study is that the PV activity cannot be used to identify patients most likely to benefit from a PV-based ablation strategy. These studies also suggest that other factors such as the influence of autonomics, non-PV triggers, and atrial fibrosis might play important roles in the persistence of AF. The next article is Association of Regional Epicardial Right Ventricular Electrogram Voltage Amplitude and the Late 
gadolinium enhancement distribution on cardiac magnetic resonance in patients with arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy written by Shaogun Xie and his co-authors at the University of Pennsylvania. Pre-procedural LGE CMR and epicardial electrogram mapping were performed in 10 ARVC patients. The locations of epicardial electrogram map points were retrospectively registered to the corresponding LGE image regions. The authors found that increased RV gadolinium uptake is associated with lower epicardial order and unipolar electrogram voltage amplitude. The authors performed a substrate-based ablation of these 10 patients. After an average of three years of follow-up, eight patients remained free from arrhythmia. The authors conclude that the use of standardized LGE CMR signal intensity Z-scores may augment pre-procedural planning for ablation in patients with ARVC via identification of low voltage zones and abnormal myocardia. This study is limited by the single center, center retrospective study design, but the results are encouraging. Next up is a paper titled Safety and the Feasibility of Leadless Pacemaker in Patients Undergoing Atrioventricular Node Ablation for Atrial Fibrillation by Yaragada et al. from University of Kansas. This multicenter observational study included 127 patients undergoing AVN ablation and pacemaker implantation. Roughly half of the patients received the leadless pacemaker and half had conventional transvenous pacemakers. After a median of one year of follow-up, 95% of the leadless pacemaker group and 97% of the conventional transvenous pacemaker group had acceptable sensing and pacing thresholds. No significant differences were noted in complication rates. These results support the feasibility and safety of leadless pacemakers compared with conventional transvenous pacemakers in patients undergoing AVN ablation for AF. A limitation of the study is that the follow-up duration is only one year and that the patients were not randomly assigned to these two groups. However, I did find it interesting that roughly half of all patients received a leadless pacemaker after AVN ablation. This shows that many practicing EP physicians have accepted the leadless pacemaker as a safe alternative for pacemaker-dependent patients. The next article is titled Magnetic Resonance Imaging Safety in Non-Conditional Pacemaker and Defibrillator Recipients. This is a meta-analysis and systematic review written by Sha et al. from Emory University. The authors analyzed 70 studies of non-MRI conditional devices undergoing MRI, allowing for analysis of 5,000 patients who underwent roughly 6,000 MRI studies. All lead characteristics and battery voltage showed very small, clinically insignificant changes when assessed as a pooled cohort although cases of clinical relevant outcomes were also noted. 
These relevant outcomes include lead failure in three, ICD shock in one, and uh, electrical reset in 94. Electrical resets were found only in older devices. In conclusion, this review demonstrated low lead failure and clinical event rate in non-MRI conditional pacemaker and defibrillator recipients undergoing MRI. However, clinically relevant outcomes did occur in some patients. These results reinforce the need for ongoing vigilance and caution, particularly with older devices. Next up is effect of ventricular pacing lead position on tricuspid regurgitation by Schleifer et al. from Mayo Clinic. This is a randomized prospective trial comparing pacing leads with uh, in the RV apex, RV mid-septum, or LV via the coronary sinus in a one-to-one-to-one fashion. Patients with pre-existing moderate or greater tricuspid regurgitation were excluded. At one year, six patients or 6.4% of all patients developed new moderate or severe tricuspid regurgitation. Neither pacing lead location or diameter appears to affect tricuspid regurgitation development significantly. LV coronary sinus leads fail to achieve a statistically significant reduction in tricuspid regurgitation as compared with RV leads. Tricuspid regurgitation can be a significant complication for RV lead placement. It is unfortunate, unfortunate that none of the alternative locations of lead placement reduced the incidence of tricuspid regurgitation at one year. Coming next is endocardial left ventricular pacing across the interventricular septum for cardiac resynchronization therapy by Gamble from Oxford University Hospitals. The purpose of this study was to develop an alternative approach to LB pacing by placing the LB lead endocardially via an interventricular septal puncture and to assess the feasibility and safety of this technique. The authors studied 20 patients, including 15 with failed transvenous LB lead placement and five CRT non-responders. The experimental procedure was successful in all with no serious complications. Clinical composite score improved at six months in 65% and worsened in 35%. One patient suffered a lacuna ischemic stroke. After two years of follow-up, three patients died and two patients suffered transient ischemic attacks. The authors conclude that LV endocardial pacing via interventricular septal puncture in patients for whom standard CRT is not possible is similarly effective and durable with significant but potentially acceptable risks. However, in spite of anticoagulation, there may be a small increase in the rate of stroke over the rate expected in these patients. A limitation of the study is that it did not include a comparison group with his bundle pacing, which does not require placing a lead to pace the LV directly. Recent data have suggested that his bundle pacing might be useful 
in patients with CRD indications. Next up is a comparative study of acute and midterm complications with leadless and transvenous cardiac pacemakers by Cantillon et al. from the Cleveland Clinic. This multicenter study evaluated the safety and efficacy of the nano-steam leadless pacemaker compared with single-chamber transvenous pacemakers. The authors found that patients with leadless pacemakers experienced fewer overall short- and midterm complications, including infection and lead and pocket-related events, but more pericardial effusions, which were uncommon but serious. A major advantage of leadless pacemaker is the elimination of pocket and lead-related complications. The trade-off is the need to use a large vascular delivery sheath in the femoral vein, resulting in increased vascular events. The authors also reported that three of the seven patients with leadless pacemakers and pericardial effusion required surgery, suggesting the existence of tearing-type injuries. Overall, the results are consistent with other studies that show good clinical outcomes in patients with leadless pacemakers. The next article is Diagnostic Value and Prognostic Implications of Early Cardiac Magnetic Resonance in Survivors of Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest, written by Zori et al. from University of Padova, Italy. The authors enrolled 44 patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who underwent coronary angiography and cardiac magnetic resonance, or CMR, within seven days after admission. Coronary angiography identified obstructive coronary disease in 18 patients. Among the remaining 26 patients without obstructive coronary diseases, CMR confirmed the clinical diagnosis in 58% and modified the clinical diagnosis in 42% by demonstrating previously unrecognized myocardial substrates. The importance of this study is the high di diagnostic yield and uh, the important prognostic information offered by early CMR studies. However, the study is limited by its retrospective nature. A prospective study will be needed to confirm the value of CMR in patients with cardiac arrest. Next up is an article by Landstrom et al. from the Texas Children's Hospital. The article is titled Amino Acid Level Signal-to-Noise Analysis of Incidentally Identified Variants in Genes Associated with Long QT Syndrome During Pediatric Whole Exome Sequencing Reflects background genetic noise. The authors studied whole exome sequence, sequencing variants of 17 LQTS-associated genes. They found variants in LQTS case-associated genes were present in 38.3% of 7,244 whole exome sequencing probands. Based on amino acid level analysis, those variants are indistinguishable from healthy background variation, whereas long QT syndrome 1 and 2 case-identified variants 
localized to clear pathogenic hotspots. These findings indicate that the prevalence of incidentally identified long QT syndrome-associated variants is about 38% among whole exome sequencing tests. These variants most likely represent benign, healthy background genetic variation rather than disease-associated mutations. While whole genome sequencing is a highly sensitive technique in detecting genetic variants, the specificity is limited. The next article is also related to genetic testing. The article is titled Lack of Genotype Phenotype Correlation in Bugatta Syndrome and Sudden Arrhythmic Death Syndrome Families with Reported Pathogenic SCN1B Variants. The article was written by Gray et al. from Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, Sydney, Australia. The, the authors sought to characterize the genotype-phenotype correlation in families who had Bugatta syndrome and the sudden arrhythmic death syndrome with reportedly pathogenic SCN1B variants and to reveal their pathogenicity. A total of 23 SCN1B genotype-positive individuals were identified from eight families. Only two of 23 genotype-positive individuals demonstrated a spontaneous Bugatta ECG pattern. Drug challenge testing in 13 of 15 was negative. The lack of genotype-phenotype concordance among families combined with the high frequency of previously reported mutations in the genome aggregation database browser suggests that SCN1B is not a monogenic cause of Bugatta syndrome and the sudden arrhythmic death syndrome. This study adds to an increasing list of pathogenic variants that were subsequently proven to be benign. These two articles indicate that genetic test results must be interpreted with caution. Correct characterization of the phenotypes of the diseases remains a cornerstone of the diagnosis of arrhythmia syndromes. Bear et al. from Foundation Bordeaux University, uh, PSAC, France, wrote the following article titled, Cardiac Electrical Dyssynchrony is Accurately Detected by Non-Invasive Electrocardiographic Imaging. The Non-Invasive Electrocardiograph Imaging, or ECGI, is a method to perform high-resolution imaging of epicardial activation. The authors suspended Langendorf perfused picards in a human torso-shaped tank with the bundle branch block induced through ablation. The hearts were then mapped simultaneously with 108 electro-epicardial sock electrode and also ECGI. The authors found that the ECGI correctly diagnosed the electrical desynchrony and interventricular resynchronization in all cases. They conclude that ECGI reliably and accurately detects electrical desynchrony, resynchronization by biventricular pacing and the site of latest activation, providing more information than to body surface potential. A clinical implication is that ECGI can be used as a non-invasive tool to accurately determine epicardial desynchrony. A limitation 
is that ECGI cannot be used to study the endocardial or septal dyssynchrony. Further investigation developmental methods are, are required. Next up is a paper titled HUR mediated SCN5A messenger RNA stability reduces arrhythmic risk in heart failure by Zhou et al. from Brown University. ELA VL1 slash HUR is a messenger RNA stabilizing protein. The purpose of this article was to investigate whether HUR regulates SCN5A messenger RNA expression and whether manipulation of HUR benefits arrhythmia control in the heart failure mouse model. The authors showed that HUR was associated with SCN5A mRNA, uh, messenger RNA in cardiomyocytes, and the expression of HUR was downregulated in fading hearts. Injection of AAV9 viral particles carrying HUR increased SCN5A expression in mouse heart tissues after MI. These data indicate that HUR is an important RNA binding protein in maintaining SCN5A messenger RNA abundance in cardiomyocytes. Reduced expression of HUR may be at least partially responsible for the downregulation of SCN5A messenger RNA expression in ischemic heart failure. Overexpression of HUR may rescue decreased SCN5A expression and reduce arrhythmic risk in heart failure. These findings are potentially clinically important because it suggests a new paradigm in antiarrhythmic therapy through messenger RNA manipulations. Martin et al. from France wrote a contemporary review article entitled Cardiac Electronic Implantable Devices After Tricuspid Valve Surgery. The demand for tricuspid valve surgery has increased continuously in the past years. Recent registry data have confirmed that tricuspid valve repair or replacement carries an increased risk of conduction disorders requiring permanent pacemaker implantation, especially for patients having multi-valve surgery. The implantation of an endocardial right ventricular lead in those patients may impair tricuspid valve function, and some other approaches may be considered to avoid traversing the valve. This contemporary review describes the different options currently available for patients requiring pacemaker or defibrillator lead implantation after tricuspid valve surgery. The next one is also a contemporary review. It is titled Management of Cardiac Implantable Electronic Devices in the Presence of Left Ventricular Assist Devices by Parikh et al. from University of Kansas. Left ventricular assist devices, or LVADs, are increasingly used in the management of patients with advanced heart failure. Many of these patients already have or will be considered for a cardiac implantable electronic device such as ICD or a CRT device. Frequent interplay between these electronic devices and LVADs is often encountered due to the complexity of these devices and underlying disease states. Proactive management strategies and an awareness 
of interactions may help reduce adverse events. Here, the authors review the current literature, present management recommendations, and discuss potential future investigations for cardiac implantable electronic devices in patients with LVADs. Next up is predicting arrhythmic risk in arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, a systematic review and meta-analysis by Bosman et al. from University of Utrecht, Utrecht, the Netherlands. The authors found 45 studies with a median cohort size of 70 patients. The average risk of ventricular arrhythmia ranged from 3.7 to 10.6% per year, depending on the population with ARVC. Male sex syncope, T-wave inversion in precordial leads beyond V3, right ventricular dysfunction and prior VTVF consistently predict ventricular arrhythmias in all populations with ARVC. The next one is a hands-on article entitled Implantation of the Subcutaneous ICD with Truncal Plane Blocks by Miller et al. from Mount Sinai, New York. The SICD implant procedures involve incision and dissection of the richly innervated mid-axillary line. Intraoperative local anesthetic wound infiltration is routine and provides moderate anesthesia but effects are short-lasting and the complete coverage of the affected areas is difficult. In this article, the authors demonstrated the adjunctive regional anesthesia using, using trinkle blocks was safe and technically feasible. This technique may be useful to physicians who perform SICD implantations. In addition to the above articles, this month the journal also publishes a special article from Dr. Michael Rosen entitled, Would I Do It Again? Reflections on a Career in Academia and Electrophysiology. A Josephson and Williams ECG lesson titled, A Change from Atrial Fibrillation into a White QRS Tachycardia in a 69-Year-Old Man. An image of tension pneumopericardium after pericardial synthesis and four EP News articles. I hope you enjoy this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Peng Xian Chen.